Genesis chapter 32. You know, I'll tell you a little secret about me. I mean, we're a small group here. Welcome to everybody watching online. Um, I don't know, just me. You know what? When I don't teach for a couple of weeks, I'm fearful that I'm going to forget how to do it. And so pray for me. Um, Pray for me. Anyway, uh, you'll recall last time we were together, we saw um, Jacob. He was called by the Lord to, to leave Padanaram and to return to Bethel. And Jacob, he tries to sneak off without telling uh, Laban because, you know, he's afraid of Laban. Jacob uh, was a type of man he could manipulate the situation. He would take advantage of people to get everything that he wanted out of it. But you know what? He was afraid of confrontation. He tried really hard to avoid confrontation. He, you know, he just wasn't that type of guy that, that you know, wanted to argue. Uh, and we saw Laban's response to Jacob sneaking off, right? He was hot. He was angry. And he goes in hot pursuit of Jacob. Jacob's trying really hard. Jacob knows about fleeing. Remember 20 years ago, he, f- he fled from his brother. Right? He knows about fleeing, and he's running probably as fast as he can, as fast as his, <clears throat> you know, wives and camels, and, you know, as fast as they can go. He gets his three-day head start, and he's running so fast it takes seven days for Laban to catch up to him. And Laban's intent is to hurt Jacob, to do him harm, to take everything from him, take his flocks, take his wives, take his kids, and then return to Padan Aram, just, you know, probably leave Jacob dead. But God Almighty, he appears to Laban in a dream, and he tells him to rethink that plan, you know. And God is protecting Jacob, and it's so great because, you know what, Jacob's not even aware of it. God is protecting him, and he doesn't even know it. So since Laban couldn't hurt Jacob the way he intended to hurt him, you know, God's warned him, don't, don't do it, don't go there. Laban just is like, okay, well, let's make a covenant, right? So they stack up a bunch of stones, you'll recall. They made a pillar. Jacob calls it Galid. It's a heap of witness. And the covenant that, the, that Jacob makes with Laban is that neither one of them would pass that heap of stone to do the other harm. And after they ate, after they make this covenant, uh, you know, Laban, he, he goes home. He returns uh, his old way. And for Jacob, the situation that he's in, there's no going back to that life that he's known for the last 20 years. There's no going back now to Uncle Laban's house. But the problem is that 20 years ago, Jacob fled his house going to Uncle Laban's house to get away from uh, his brother Esau because Esau swore, man, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. It's just the way it's going to be. And now Jacob, he flees from Laban's house and he's fleeing towards now his brother Esau. And Jacob, he's between this rock and a hard place um, and there's problems behind him and there's troubles in front of him. And so that's the background. And then verse 1 says, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And as Jacob is walking in obedience to God, he's heading back to Bethel, just like God had told him to. It says the angels of God met him. And it's been 20 years since Jacob has seen 
uh, the angels of God. You remember back in Genesis 28, Jacob has this dream of this ladder. And uh, that ladder is there on earth and it, and it goes up to heaven and it ascends up to heaven. You know, the top uh, was in heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending in that ladder. And John, again, just kind of a recap, Jesus said in John 1 that he was the ladder. It was Jesus that opens up heaven. It's Jesus that makes a way to the Father for those that are here upon earth. And it's during this dream that that Jacob has, that God promises Jacob this just beautiful, tremendous promise that he would be with him wherever he went. And it says that the angels of God met him. But you know, the reality, they've always been there, right? Uh, you know, Psalm 34, 7 says, the angels of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Hebrews 1.14 says that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. I mean, how patient is our God? How patient is our God? God is so patient to work in our lives. God is reminding Jacob, giving him this vision of these angels. He's bringing to remembrance of Jacob Bethel when he last saw these angels 20 years ago. The angels are to remind Jacob that God is watching out for him, that God is taking care of him. And uh, it's to be a reminder to Jacob that as he obeys the Lord, again, he's returning to Bethel like God has told him to. As he obeys the Lord, God is there to protect him. God is letting Jacob know that as he's walking in obedience to God, God is willing to bring resources to bear on Jacob's behalf that he's completely unaware of. And, and you know what? It just blows me away just thinking about that. Just thinking about that. Resources to bear in Jacob's life that he's completely unaware of. And Jacob, he's crossing a lot of dangerous territory right now. He's got this large caravan of, uh, you know, flocks and uh, herds of cattle. He's got four wives. He's got a bunch of kids. You know, he's easy pickings for any marauding thieves that are going through this area. But God is there for him. And his angels are there to protect him. And you know what? We can't leave a Bible study like this without understanding the same is true for each one of us. You know, how often do we see God has been working in our lives? You know, it's always when we're looking back you know, the reality is God is always working in our lives. And when we walk in obedience to God, he's there to guide, to direct, to protect. He's there to carry us through the difficult situations we face. How many of you, I mean, don't shout out, but how many of you need and long for and desire God's guidance? You know, God's uh, direction. God's protection. I know that that's, that's, you know, a major part of my prayer life is just, God, give me, give me, you know, an understanding of which way I'm to go. Lord, just show me what it is you want to do. You know, just, God, in this situation, would you just guide and protect? And, uh, you know, how many of us desire that? I think we all do. And it's all there for us if we'll just walk in obedience to him.
You know what? It's there for us. And verse 2 says, when Jacob saw them, saw the angels, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place. Anybody want to give it a stab? Mahananim. <laughs> you know, if you say it really fast, nobody's going to question you. It just sounds like you know what you're saying, right? So Jacob, he recognizes the supernatural surrounding his life, and he calls this place God's camp. Mahananim. And then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Edom is that region that's just south of the Dead Sea. You know, it's where Esau, Jacob's brother, settles. And the descendants of Edom, they populate that area. And they're referred to as the Edomites. And uh, verse 4 says, And he commanded them, he commands his servants, uh, saying, Speak thus to my Lord, uh, Esau, that your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. Even though Jacob has the birthright, even though he has the blessing, he takes this position of humility, right? He calls Esau Lord, and he refers to himself as Esau's servant. And he has uh, his servants repeat this, uh, title. Repeat these phrases uh, many times in Esau's hearing. Verse 5, he says, tell him, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I've sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob launches these messengers out ahead of him, knowing that his brother is going to hear that he's returning to the land. So Jacob's idea is to get these messengers out there in front of him, and they'll meet Esau. Uh, and in the event that Esau is really still angry and bent on harming Jacob, you know, uh, they'll meet him and say, hey, my servant, or my Lord Esau, you know, my servant, or your servant Jacob, you know, he has, he has all of this stuff. He has all of, all of these blessings, you know. And his idea is that if after these 20 years, Esau is still nursing this grudge towards him, you know, these messengers, they'll go out and they'll uh, inform Esau that Jacob, he has plenty of stuff. He's doing well for himself. He has cattle. He has servants. You know, he's returning to the land, and he's not wanting anything from Esau. What he's telling Esau is that I'm no threat to you. I'm not coming to take anything from you. Those days are behind us. In verse 6, then the messengers returned to Jacob. I mean, I read this, I laugh every time. They returned to Jacob and said, hey, we came to your brother and Esau, and guess what? He's coming out to meet you, and he's coming with 400 men. Usually you don't bring 400 men along with you to welcome, you know, a long-lost relative. I mean, they're, they're, Jacob knows they're not intending to have a picnic and a reunion. I mean, 400 men, it means only one thing. And it means that Esau is coming with an army to meet Jacob with the intent to kill him. And 400 men, I mean, we're talking about, you know, back then, they're kind of like maybe not even city-states, right? There's no military, organized military, really. So 400 men back in these days, this was a, a sizable, this was a formidable force that you're talking about. And all it means for Jacob is there's trouble on the horizon. In verse 7, so Jacob with, 
was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies. Jacob's reaction to this news that Esau's come with 400 men is he's filled with fear. He's afraid. It says that he was also distressed. That means he's, he's worrying. He's filled with worry. And what happens is Jacob falls back into his old ways, and he thinks, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He starts to scheme, and he starts to devise a plan for his survival. Verse 8, he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the other company, uh, which is left, will escape. He um, breaks his servants, his wealth, his flocks into two groups, and his thinking is if Esau swoops down and attacks one group and kills everybody in that group, well then, you know, half of my stuff is going to survive. You know, maybe they'll think that's all there is. There's nothing more. And then he'll just walk away. At least half of my stuff is going to survive the attack. And Jacob, he's just, he's just trying to prepare for the worst. He's just trying to think it through, make a plan, prepare for the worst. And Jacob does what we so often do when we're faced with problems that fill us with fear and worry, right? Jacob completely forgets that God has promised to protect him. He's protected him. He, he forgets that God has protected him for the last 20 years from Laban. He forgets the promises that God gave him that wherever he would go, God would be with them. You know, it's crazy. I think about this. It's crazy. We're so good at forgetting. We're not so good at remembering, you know, especially when we're faced with problems. We so often revert to, what am I going to do? What am I going to do in the face of, of difficulties? It can so often be that when we're faced with a crisis that requires faith, you know, we're faced with a crisis, a situation that is beyond our resources, you know what? We forget how God has meant us and cared for us in the past. We just forget it. We forget the promises of God, which he's spoken to us, which are sure and steadfast. And we approach the situation like, you know, survival depends on our own, you know, wisdom. All because we forget our history with God. Flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, what? There's more? Yes, there's more. And not only that, but we glory in tribulation. I mean, you ever feel like you and Paul are on different pages? <laughs> I mean, just like, are you kidding me, Paul? How do you glory in tribulations? He says we can glory in them, continue knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
Now, the King James Version translates verse 4 a little bit differently. It substitutes the word character with the word experience. This is what King James Version says, verses 3 and 4. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. You know, as God brings us through these difficult situations, through these trials, you know, what it does is it produces uh, patience. It produces perseverance. produces, um, you know, uh, endurance in, in our lives. When we're faced with trials and troubles, we're to face them reflecting on past experiences of the Lord's deliverance and trials in our life, right? And that experience, Experience, as we look back to what God has done in our lives, that becomes our experience. And it's that experience of his faithfulness in the past that is to produce hope in the present. You know, it was Corey Ten Boom, I believe, she said, God's past faithfulness demands my present trust. And I implore each one of us tonight, boy, you know what? Don't allow your past experiences with the Lord to go to waste when you're faced with present or even future problems. God has brought us through so much. He's given us, we have experience with his faithfulness, and that's to give us that hope that he's going to meet us. He will continue to meet us. He's faithful, and he will never fail you. It's worth hearing it again. God is faithful and he'll never fail you. His promises are sure and steadfast. Jesus said, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so that by the mouths of two or three witnesses, everything would be established. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, my promises, my words will by no means pass away. Jacob forgets God's promises, his past deliverances, and his past protection. And he just goes back. He reverts to his old ways. And verse 9 says, Then Jacob said, Oh, God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord, Jehovah, it's all caps. Jacob's the type of guy that he devises a plan, and when everything else fails, then he prays. You know what the better way is? The better way is to pray first. Trust in the Lord. Exercise your faith in the Lord. Then allow God to give you his plan to reassure you in that situation, uh, to answer your prayers, to provide for you, uh, to be the deliverer, and then just be obedient to what it is that he shows you. That's the better way. You know, Jacob prays, Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. He reminds God of his promises that, that God has given him. And you know what? It's okay to remind God of his word, you know, the promises that he's given to us. When we pray God's words, when we pray, you know, from, from just scripture, when we pray the promises that he's given us, we're praying according to his will. You know, Lord, God, 
Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that the church, and that includes me, Lord, that the church uh, would be, would comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Lord, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Lord, would you do that in my life, please? Lord, would you just fill me with the love of Christ that just surpasses knowledge? Lord, would you just fill me with the fullness of God, which the Bible says that heavens can't contain uh, the God. Lord, would you fill me with your fullness? You know, Lord, would you do that in my life, please? And 1 John 5, 14, 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. When we pray according to his word, when we pray according to his promises, the things that he's promised to do in our lives, you know what? We can have the confidence that he, in fact, will give those things to us because that's what he's promised us. And it's good to remind God of his promises, not because of he's forgotten them, you know what? Wow, thanks, Gare. Man, thanks for reminding me. I completely forgot that promise. What would I do without you? It's been such a hard week for me, Gary. Thank you. Thank you again for reminding me. No, God doesn't forget, right? God doesn't forget. He can't forget. But we remind him of his promises so we would be reminded of his promises. It's good for us since we are prone to forgetfulness. Verse 10 says, Jacob continues to pray. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. Jacob is, is acknowledging all that the Lord uh, has given him, has, has done for him here, right? He left the land with nothing. He's fleeing for his life leaves with just the clothes on his back, and now he's coming back with great wealth. And boy, I just tell you, it's so good. It's so good to just look around your house, look around what you have, and just thank the Lord for it. And I'll just tell you, it's a habit of Tina and I. You know, when we, when we left uh, for the mission field, we sold everything, and we literally, we left with nothing. We left with some pictures, uh, you know, everything that, that was precious to us, we've put it in storage. It's been there 20 years. We've got to get it out of storage quick. But uh, we put it in uh, all our precious family memorabilia. You know, uh, you know, Tina has some china that we got when we got married. We put it in storage, and we just left. We left with nothing. 20 years ago, we left with nothing. But if you came to our house today, you would think that we were so incredibly wealthy. And it's all because of the things that God has given us. You know, everything that we own, I can remember the circumstance, you know, which the Lord gave it to us. I can remember how he met the need. And often what I'll do is I'll just grab Tina's hand and, and we'll just pray together. We'll just look around the room. Lord, thank you for that rug that you gave us in Jordan. Lord, thank you for, you know, that picture frame that you gave us from the thrift shop in, in um, Hungary. Thank you for that armoire 
that we got off the side of the street because somebody was throwing it away. Just all these things that God has given us. You know, if you like antiques, Europe's a great place to go because a lot of people, you know, that's grandma stuff. Just toss it out. But, you know, God just blessed us with so much stuff. We left. We left with nothing. And we returned with so much. But most of all, we left with nothing. And we returned with a testimony of God's faithfulness in our lives. And here we see Jacob. He recognized. I just encourage you. Boy, go home and just look at all the stuff that you have. I mean, literally, I'm looking at everything. Lord, those glasses. Thank you for those glasses. I remember getting them from the uh, Hofbrau in, in our village. You know, you couldn't buy anything in our village. We lived in in Germany. But you could buy beer. There was a brewery there. Well, it's Germany. Of course there's a brewery there, right? But, you know, those glasses. Thank you for those glasses, Lord. Thank you for that, that uh, bench that you gave us, Lord. Thank you for the table. You know, we went a long time without a dinner table. And God miraculously, amazingly, gave us a bottom, a pedestal. And we just started praying for a top. And then, then you know what? Our landlord, he's a carpenter. He says, hey, you guys need a top for that pedestal. Let me make you one. I'm like, oh, would you? Yeah. So, you know, I just encourage you. Just go around. Thank the Lord. Jacob here, he recognizes how good God has been to him, the blessings that God has bestowed upon his life, and he continues to pray. He says, verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. It's a simple, it's a direct, it's a sincere prayer. Lord, please deliver me from my brother. I have no idea what he wants, what he's, what he wants to do, what he's going to do, but Lord... Would you please intervene on my behalf? He says, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. He's up front with the Lord. He confesses his fear. He's not trying to sound more spiritual than he is. Oh, Holy Father, I beseech thee now. You know, he's just, God, please help. He knows, God knows he's afraid and he confesses it just transparent before the Lord. He's open and he's honest with where he's at. In verse 32, he says, For you said, Lord, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And again, he reminds God of his promises to him. It was a promise that God made to him 20 years ago. It was a promise that God had given him that was handed down from Abraham to Isaac, and now God gave it to Jacob. And Jacob now does what we so often do. Again, don't shout out if this is you. But what does he do? He prays. He puts the entire situation into God's hands for about 10 minutes. And then, you know, he takes it back into his own hands. Verse 13, so he lodged there that same night, and took what came in his hands as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 lambs. 30 milk camels with their colts. I didn't know this before. I'm a city boy. You know what a cow has to have before it gives milk? Has to have a calf. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought you just like went to the grocery store, opened the door, and grabbed the gallon of milk. Man, the cows produce the milk. But... Uh, the reason why I point it out is because he gives 30 milk camels 
with their colts. That means 30 colts also. 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 foals. That's at least 580 animals that he puts together to give to Esau. You know, he's prayed, but he goes right back to doing the things that uh, he does. He relies on his own wisdom instead of trusting the Lord. He's a manipulator. His name's Jacob. He's a surplanter, a trickster, a conniver. That's who he is. That's what he does. And God is going to work that out of him. And then he's going to give him a new name. What Jacob is going to do now is he takes these 580 animals and he splits them into three, three groups. He sends each group with a servant out ahead of him. And he tells them, you know, put some distance. spread out between each group. You know, and the hope is that as these waves, waves of animals come to Esau and they're given to him as a gift, you know, it's going to have an impact on him. And Jacob is thinking if the first uh, group doesn't appease uh, Esau's anger, then maybe the second will. And if the second group doesn't soften Esau's heart towards him, then maybe the third will. And we need to keep in mind, too, if you had 10 of any of these animals in those days, you know, you were doing pretty good for yourselves, right? If you had 10 oxen, if you had 10 camels, 10 of anything, you were living in the upper middle class neighborhood. You were doing pretty well for yourself. So when Jacob pulls out 580 animals to give to his brother, right, it's, it's an indication how incredibly wealthy Jacob is, how, how God has just blessed him with tremendous material wealth. And this would be an amazing amount of wealth that Jacob is giving to his brother Esau, all because Jacob fills that Esau has an amazing amount of anger towards him that he needs to appease. Verse 16, then he delivered them into the hands of his servants. This is just what we uh, talked about just now. He delivered them into the hands of his servants. Every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between the successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, make sure you say this, they are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. So he commanded the second, I want you to say the same thing. When you come to Esau, he commands the third, say the same thing. And all who followed the drove saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, behold, make sure you say this, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. Jacob tells him, make sure you say, my Lord Esau and your servant Jacob. I mean, he's, he's trying to butter Esau up, right? Tell him, this is a present from my, uh, your servant Jacob. He's careful to tell each servant, make sure you say this. And he's really trying hard to make Esau know that he's nothing. Jacob is nothing. He's not a threat to Esau. He's a servant of Esau. And we're told right here uh, what Jacob is thinking. 
continue that verse. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. As the flocks go forward, Jacob stays behind with his family to make sure that there's distance now between the third uh, wave of animals and the family. He wants to make sure there's distance between them. And verse 22, he, he arose that night and took his, his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons, crossed over the fort of Jabbok and took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. And now this fort of Jabbok, it's a feeder stream. It's just a small kind of little stream brook. It's a feeder stream into the Jordan River. And Jacob knows that he's not going to meet Esau tonight. So he sends his family over the Jabbok so he can um, get some quiet time. So he can think through uh, what he's going to do. He stays on this side of the brook. And interestingly, Jabbok means emptying. For the last 20 years, Jacob has been on his way to Jabbok. And it says, verse 24, that Jacob was left alone. Jacob's now, he's all alone. 20 years before this, at Bethel, he found belief. Now, 20 years later, Jacob finds sanctification. It was at Bethel 20 years earlier where Jacob found faith. And it's here at Jabbok that Jacob is going to find the behavior of a believer. 20 years earlier at Bethel, Jacob found salvation. And it's here at Jabbok, it's here at emptying that he finds brokenness. 20 years ago, Jacob was saved, but it's taken 20 years. It's taken 20 years. Now he's all alone. The flocks are gone. The wealth is gone. You know, his servants are gone. His family's gone. Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah, they're gone. His 11 sons and who knows how many daughters, they're all gone. Jacob's all alone. And God is so patient. God is so patient. God's been waiting for this moment. God's so patient to get us to the place where we are all alone with him. That's his heart for us. He's so patient. It may take, it may take 20, it may take 10 years, I don't know. But he's willing to wait. He's willing to wait. He's patient to work in our lives to get us to that place of emptying to get us to the place where he can do a work in our lives, to get us to the place where change can take place in our lives. I heard somebody say one time, and I just thought of it, you know, uh, God blessed me. And God gave him a picture of how he had to scrape them out of the cup before God could fill it. You know, I just think that that's the way it is. We need to be empty before God can fill and it says while he's all alone, just imagine it's dark. There's no street lights. It's dark. He's all alone. He's worrying. Every, every you know, branch that snaps, every tumbleweed that blows by, he thinks it's Esau. And then all of a sudden he feels a hand on his shoulder. <laughs> and it says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now we're going to find out in verse 30 that this man is none other than God. 
you know, we have here um, another theophany or Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. Well, how do you know that it's Jesus and not God, Gary? Well, because God the Father is spirit. So you can't wrestle with him in a physical way, uh, the way Jacob wrestles with this man. Uh, so uh, this man or God, as we're going to discover. So it must be God the Son in the form of a Christophany. And the Hebrew word here that's uh, translated wrestle, it's a very interesting word. It actually means vapor or dust. And uh, it's speaking of the dust of the ground. Genesis 32 is the only place that this word is used. It's used twice in this chapter. And Hebrew scholars believe that it's used here because the Lord came down and wrestled or grappled with Jacob. He condescends. This holy God condescends to come down and wrestle and grapple with Jacob in the dust of the ground. And please note here, too, Jacob is not the initiator of this wrestling match. So many people, they'll say, you know, Jacob wrestled with God, but that's not true. God wrestles with Jacob. The Lord wants Jacob to give up. He wants him to cry uncle. He wants him to surrender. So Jesus wrestles with them all night, it says, until the breaking of, of day. And it's amazing, if you know anything about wrestling, that they wrestled all night. Wrestling is so taxing physically. You know, I enjoy watching wrestling. I didn't wrestle in school just because it's too much work. I mean, those guys. I mean, Olympic wrestlers, they wrestle for uh, three bouts, five minutes, 30-second break in between, and after that, they're spent. Wrestlers are probably the fittest athletes if they're not the fittest athletes, man, they're up at the top. They're, you see every muscle, you see every vein in the body of the wrestlers, other than the heavyweights, of course. But uh, those guys are crazy, uh, amazingly fit. And after 15 minutes, they're spent. But these guys, Jacob and this man, they wrestle the entire night. Jacob was stubborn. Jacob was stubborn. He wrestles all night and he won't give up. And don't forget, Jacob is 90 years old at this point. I'll never forget, you know, I was, I don't know, 35 or 40. And I was involved in the uh, college ministry there in Corvallis. And uh, I remember one of the college guys, we were up at a retreat at Applegate. And one of the college guys, you know, he started kidding around, kind of started wrestling with me. And, you know, I'm like, okay, you want a piece of me? Here I am, tater tot, let's go. <laughs> I kind of went and I grabbed that guy. <laughs> to my utter surprise, he was solid. <laughs> he was strong and it scared me. <laughs> and I knew in an instant I bit off too much. <laughs> I bit off more than I can chew. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he let me go and I was so thankful. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But Jacob, he wrestles all night. And he's not going to give up. He's not going to cry uncle. And when we talk about Jacob being a determined person, you know, a person who's going to come out ahead no matter what, this gives us understanding, gives us insight into his determination, 
his fortitude and his strength that he had. And it says in verse 25, now when he had, uh, saw, when Jesus saw that he did not prevail against them. Now, when you read that, don't think that Jesus, this man that was wrestling with Jacob, couldn't put Jacob down in a heartbeat. You know, don't think it was like a draw, right? God is wanting to do something in Jacob's life here. God is wrestling with Jacob to bring blessing and benefit to him. And, and imagine, you know, imagine you're wrestling with God. Imagine you're in, you know, God's got you in a headlock or an arm bar. And he says, give up that relationship. And you say, no, I won't do it. So he applies a little more pressure. You know, give up that habit. No, you can't make me. You know, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. Jacob, he just won't surrender. And the Lord is not prevailing or making any headway with him. And again, aren't we like that? You know? I mean, you don't want, uh, you just want to understand, you may be a believer. We can be believers, but our trust is in our own strength. You know, you may be a believer. We can be believers, but our life is not yet set aside or surrendered. You know, you may be a believer, we can be believers, but things in our life, they're just not in their proper place. And God wants to bless. But because we can be stubborn, because we hold tight onto useless things, meaningless things, we hold so tight, like we have this death grip on it. Because of that, he can't bless us and he can't do what he really wants to do in our lives, those things that are in his heart for us. So he has to resort to tougher measures. And it says, now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip went out of joint as he wrestled with them. You know, how many of you have wrestled and had your hip uh, go out of joint? Anybody? No? How many of you have just had your hip dislocated? Anybody? Yeah? Motorcycle accident? Was it painful? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the anatomy of the hip is such that it makes it difficult for that joint uh, to be dislocated. There's all these ligaments that are around your hip. There's the iliofemoral, the ischiofemoral, the pubo pubofemoral ligaments, and there's also this ligament called the ligamentum, ligamentum teres, or the ligament of the head of the femur. And it's right on the, the end of the ball of the femur. It's this ligament that goes right out into the acetabulum, the socket. And it just holds that thing in there. So because of that, it typically make, takes a great deal of force to dislocate a hip. You know, car collisions, falls from significant heights are the common cause of a hip dislocation. You know, um, I heard a story about a motorcycle guy. He's, they're going to ride across the, the Sahara Desert. He gets in a whatever, gets a little squirrely. He dumps his bike. You know, he lands. He dislocates his shoulder, and he dislocates his hip. And he said the pain in his hip was so great that he could put all of his weight on his dislocated shoulder and not even feel what was going on in his shoulder. I mean... The result of a hip dislocation, the forces that are needed for it, often uh, other bones break with it. Uh, so the pain is just indescribable. 
you, you couldn't believe it. But Jacob, with all of this, still won't give up. Just a few thoughts. You know, I don't know how this fits in, but this is just in my heart to share. You know, God touches his hip and it dislocates. You know, our God is a God of power and a God of might. You know, Psalm 102.25 says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. After three plagues that God brought upon uh, Egypt, after three plagues, the Egyptian magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, not even his hand. This is the finger of God. And Jesus said when he had cast out demons, he did it with the finger of God. You know, the Lord just touches Jacob's hip and it dislocates. Something that normally takes tremendous amounts of force and it just dislocates. And you know, the reason I, I think about this is because we can stand in confidence in the truth when we read in the Bible of God is for us who can stand against us. No weapon formed against us uh, shall prosper. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. What does that mean? According to the amount of power we allow to work in us? Maybe. I think it just means according to the power of the Holy Spirit, which is unlimited. God is able to do great things. He has power and resources to meet us and carry us through our trials and tribulations that, that we may face uh, that we're just totally unaware of. And I hope it doesn't require, I mean, I hope we just surrender to that understanding and surrender to him. I hope it doesn't require the painful processes in our life uh, to be convinced of God's ability to care for us. Verse 26, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he, Jacob, says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You know, even with this dislocated hip, Jacob, he won't let Jesus go. And right here you should have Hosea uh, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4 marked in your Bible, if it's not in your footnote, because um, that's the commentary on the events that are going on here. If you, if you read Hosea 12, 3 and 4, it says, He, Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. I mean, what go, is going on is Jacob is, is weeping. He's crying, and he's holding on desperately. He's just clinging to God. He's broken. And he's begging God for a blessing. He's beaten, but he's hanging on for dear life. He won't go. You know what? That's, that's not a bad place to be where you're just hanging on to the Lord. You know what? Everything else may, may go, may leave, abandon us. Everybody can be against us, whatever. But I'm hanging on to the Lord. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to get a blessing from him. In verse 27, so he, Jesus, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Don't think that the Lord doesn't know his name. Not only does the Lord know his name, but he knows everything about him. 20 years ago, when Jacob was asked the same question, he said, Hamisa, when he was seeking to steal a blessing. 
And now Jacob is seeking a blessing. The Lord says, so what's your name? He's going to make Jacob confess what his name is. And I believe Jacob, utterly broken at this point, he says, my name is dirty, rotten, lying, good-for-nothing, scheming, self-willed, trickster, and I'm sick of it. God makes Jacob confess who he is as if to point out to him, and look at where that life has taken you. You're a strong man, Jacob. You're incredible. You're an incredible man in terms of strength compared to others. And look where you have been directing your efforts and strength. You have Laban behind you, and you can't go back. You have Esau and all kinds of problems ahead of you, and you're afraid to go forward. Just look at where your strength, your manipulation, your scheming has brought you. Look where your unguarded, unguided strength has taken you in life. And just so we don't miss the lesson, all of us are Jacobs, by the way. But the wonderful thing about life, and life can be painful. I mean, boy, it can be painful, right? But when we come to the end of our strength, when we come to the end of our wisdom, our manipulations, when we come to the end of it all, all of our ingenuity, all of our cleverness, when we're just broken before the Lord and we can take an honest and objective look at where our wisdom and our efforts have taken us in life, it's then God can say, look at it, look at that. Look at what your genius, your strength has accomplished, what it's done for you. You know, coming to that place of brokenness before the Lord, coming to that end of ourselves it is actually such a blessing because that's where God can begin an amazing work in each one of us. You know, you see people in the world and they think they're so smart. I mean, they're, they're such geniuses. And they reject God and they mock you for believing in him. You know, God is unable to do anything in their lives because they're unwilling to look to him, to rely on him, to rely on his strength instead of their own strength and their own wisdom. And those people, they're, they're a mass. In all honesty, they're a mass in and of themselves and they're lost. And here, God is exposing Jacob's failures and says, do you really think you don't need me in your life? <laughs> and now look at the blessing God pronounces upon him, verse 28. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. No longer will your name be called dirty, rotten, lying, scheming, thieving, trickster. And that's what Jacob means. But from now on, your name shall be Israel. God changes Jacob's name here. Names in the Bible are synonymous with character and a person's nature. And God changes his name to Israel, which means governed by God, ruled by God. You know, and that's the blessing that God gives Jacob. That's a tremendous blessing. That's the greatest blessing that any one of us in this life could receive. 
to go from this self-made man or woman, a manipulator, a conniver, a schemer, a con man, to come to realization that, that there's nothing of lasting value in this life. To realize that the best that I can do as a person, the, the most that I can achieve in my own strength, in my own ingenuity, is infinitely less than what God has in store for us, what he intends for life to be for us. To go from that type of man or woman to become a man or woman that's ruled by God, surrendered to God. I mean, boy, that is a tremendously amazing blessing. And when our lives become governed by God, there's blessing beyond imagination because that's what true life is all about. That's where life is the most fulfilled. That's where there's a life of freedom and of joy, a life of adventure. There's nothing that can be, paired, can be compared to a life that's led and guided by the Spirit of God. Being led and guided by the Spirit of God is the most exciting life that anybody can experience, that life that's just governed by God. And the Lord continues and says, for, and that's a reason word, for you have struggled with God and men and have pre prevailed. <laughs> what do you mean he prevailed? I mean, he's a sobbing, sweaty mess. He's broken. He's sick of who he is. What do you mean he prevailed? Well, he did prevail with God. How did he prevail with God? Through prayer, through brokenness, through humility and surrender. Coming to the Lord in that way, that's how he prevailed with God. The only, uh, no one truly prevails with God until God prevails in their life. If it's not until God wins in our life that we win in life, no matter how painful the process may be, no matter how painful it is to get us to that point, that's when we win. And here's the greatest thing that happens in Jacob's life, and that's God prevails in the situation, and Jacob has prevailed by virtue of surrender to the Lord. And it's interesting to note that going forward, Jacob is called Israel at times in the Scripture, but sometimes he's called Jacob. And it just shows us that he's a, he's a life in transition. You know, he's not what he used to be. He's not what he's going to be. You know what? I relate to that. I'm in transition. The Lord is doing a work. God is working in Jacob's life. He's working in my life. He's working in your life. The character that's pleasing to him that is ultimately what God wants for each one of us. That's what God is doing in each one of us. Paul said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what? We too are to press on, forgetting those things that lay behind. Forgetting what things? 
The failures? Yeah, forget the failures. The victories too. Forget those victories. You know what? It's all in the past. Today's the day we press on today for that upward call. And the word picture that the Greek uh, is painting here for what we translate press on, it's that, that runner in the Olympic Games that he's coming to the end of his race and he's agonizing, he's stretching forward, just reaching for the finish line. And that's what is to happen in our lives. We're to press on, not to give up, to agonize, to seek to know Jesus Christ, to know uh, his grace, to just grow in the knowledge of his grace, seeking to fulfill his purposes in our lives, which he's called us to, and ultimately bringing glory to his name. Verse 29 says, and then Jacob asked him, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. I don't know why uh, God doesn't tell Jacob his name. Um, I just know he doesn't tell him. If it's a big deal for you, when you see him, you can ask him. But uh, verse 30 says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over, Penuel the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. And I can imagine when he shows up to his family, he looks like a wreck. <laughs> He's a mess. And he's walking up to him, you know, I don't know. Have you ever had one of those nights where you can't sleep, you wrestle with the Lord all night, and you wake up, and you just look in the mirror, and you say, goodness, you know? And people see you in the morning, they think, man, what happened? What happened to you? You look like you've been worked over. But I can imagine as, as Jacob comes to his family, and he's limping, and they say, what on earth has happened to you, Jacob? You look so awful. Why are you limping? And I can just hear Jacob in my mind say, my name's not Jacob anymore. It's Israel. You know, he was emptied at Jabbok, and there was a visible change in his life now. He struggled, but now he's yielded and broken. He's not so self-assured anymore. 20 years God has waited to do this work in Jacob's life for our learning and for our benefit so that we can glean the lesson so we don't have to go through these things. And verse 32 says, Therefore, to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank which is, in, which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle shrank. Now, maybe this is spiritualizing the text too much. I don't know. But the muscle, it represents his strength. And that muscle shrank, you know. Uh, he's been touched by God, and his strength is just shrank. You know, it's the uh, picture, I think, of, of our old nature. When we come to the Lord, man, our old nature just begins to shrink and shrivel up. Not fast enough for me. But one day soon, our old nature, our flesh is going to be done away with. John, 1 John 3, 2 says, and has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a glorious day that will be, huh? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, Lord.
Help us just to surrender to your word, Lord. Help us to surrender to you, to remember all that you've done for us, all that you've promised us, Lord, all that you've brought us through, not to forget it, Lord, and just that experience, just with that experience, hope in you as we face difficulties, Lord. And, and Lord, as we're in this world now and there's just strange times strange things going on all around us. Lord, help us just to trust in you, not to fear, just to trust in you, to be wise with the wisdom that you give, Lord. We just give you praise. We give you glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.